Hello, Kachimonas. I am very excited to be bringing you this first episode of season five in the 2022 new year, which was my interview with author Ana Castillo. And we talked about her new book of poems, Book of the Dead. We discussed her process in selecting the poems for this anthology. She defined Chicanisma and its context. And we addressed the controversy around Hachicarillo's Cuban ancestry. It was a really interesting interview, and I do hope that you enjoy. If you would like to support the podcast, you can become a Patreon, and you would have gotten access to this episode months ago, which I, because I do early release to patrons, and you also get exclusive access to the lit reviews, which are book club style chats, super relatable with fierce women of color. For five or ten dollars a month, you'll have access to that content and other amazing things that are, come with being a part of the Radio Cachimbona Patreon community. So go to patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona to join. Another way to support non-monetarily is to leave an Apple podcast rating and review or a Spotify podcast rating and review. That is the new thing now. Spotify does take reviews and publishes reviews of podcasts. So please, please, please give it a five-star rating and share why you listen to the podcast. I think that's it. So yes, Kachimbonas, I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hello, Kachimbonas. Today, I am very excited to have Ana Castillo, poet, novelist, essayist, and activist here on the podcast to talk about her latest book of poems, My Book of the Dead. And before getting into that, I just wanted to say, Anna, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and talking about your book of poems. I very much enjoyed reading them and wanted to ask how you're doing today. I'm doing great. Thank you very much for the opportunity and sharing in my pleasure and excitement of, of having a new collection of poetry out yes. this week. So in your dedication, you say the book is honoring the memory of the dead and survivors, including Mother Earth. What did you mean by that? Well, the title of the book is uh, mm-hmm. My Book of the Dead. And um, I think that in some some ways that describes what we have been going through and when i say we i mean everybody on the planet has been have been going through in the last few years so from the catastrophes natural catastrophes that are happening that we're just sort of becoming used to or taking as a given mm-hmm. all the way to our personal losses and grievances Uh, that we've been experiencing as a result of the pandemic and so much else in terms of loss that people are experiencing right now is is what what led me to feel this is a time in which many people on the planet are sharing in so many different ways. Yeah, definitely. And I something that I appreciated about the book of poems was that you were able to bring up these really important contemporary events that are shaping our lives today, like gun violence, like Black Lives Matter and police shootings of unarmed Black children. And then you also have personal components in there, like you, there's personal friends of yours 
that you've lost that you dedicate some of the poems to and because as you say this really has been kind of like a collective period of mourning and loss for so many and so I wanted to invite you to talk about John Trudell who's the person that you dedicated your first poem to and wanted to ask who was that person and why were they so important to you? John Trudell was from my generation as the boomer generation. He identified as a Native American. He was also of Mexican descent. I think his mother was uh, from Mexico, but he was very involved in the American Indian movement in the late 60s and early 70s. And he was a dedicated activist throughout his life, advocating on behalf of Native Americans. But he was also a, a poet and he had a, a band, a musical band. I think they did, you know, recordings and performances and so on. So um, in 2015, when I wrote that poem, it was in response to his passing, his crossing over in homage of that. And that's who John Trudell was. I think that in the past, I don't know so much now, but in the past, meaning before right now, to whenever we can remember the written word, I think that the poet was always seen as the person who had his or her ear to the ground, and they would tell us what was coming. And the poem that you're referring to is called A Storm Upon Us, and, and it was written in 2015, as I said, um, and the poem says there's a storm coming, and there was a storm coming, as it turned out, and um, mm -hmm. that's why that's so important to me. The, right. The, the poet in a, in a village, in a town, in a community, in a country has always been the one that has been able to step back and, and really have the courage, I think, at least in, in, their, in their verses, in their words, to tell us what the vision is. And, and so often uh, that vision isn't what most people want to see. And so that's, that's who John Trudell was. And, and the poem, A Storm Upon Us, which is the first poem in the collection, is, um, is warning us that this is here. It's right here. And we're, we're all going to be affected by it. And, you know, this, it's going to affect everybody, whether you like it or not. And if you don't do something about it, or if you don't participate in doing something about it, you're going to find yourself swept into the storm. Mm. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that call to action. You also dedicated one of your poems to Hache Carillo, who was a celebrated writer and professor and a close friend of yours who died earlier this year. And controversy arose because it was discovered that though he claimed to have Cuban lineage, he did not ultimately have ancestral ties to Cuba. And this is kind of in the wake of a lot of, of like a few people in academia who had been lying about their identities. And so I wanted to ask, how did learning that affect your memories of him? Well, I don't have any information to that effect. Ache Carrillo was, an, to my mind, my mm -hmm. understanding, he, is, mm -hmm. uh, he was an Afro-Cuban, very Black Cuban man who left Cuba and lived in Spain. He was also a very out gay man who lived very much true to his life and his lifestyle. He went on to study, came to the United States, acquired his PhD, became a professor. So I don't know anything about him 
making up a story about being from Cuba. If he wasn't, I don't know where he was from because, as I said, he was a very black Afro-Cuban man. He didn't speak with a Spanish accent. I don't think he was originally from Madrid. So I don't know where, where those stories are coming from about him. And it was a great pleasure getting to know him when his first novel came out and knowing him afterwards as a scholar. Yeah. What novel was that? Speaking English or something like that came out many years ago and it was something about it was it said something like speaking english or english or spanglish something spanglish in it what is it let me ask you what is it that you heard that you doubt that he was from cuba well there was an expose that came out because i think his sister had said that he did not have ties to cuba and was Black American as as in the United States and and I forget from which state. Like I don't know if you also heard about Jess La Bombera that that controversy. I don't know who that person is. <laughs> so it was another academic who had claimed to be Puerto Rican, and actually there was just like white European woman with no ancestral ties to Puerto Rico. Also recently, the president of the National Lawyers, the, so there was a woman named Natasha Banan that, or she say Banan, <laughs> who was also white United Statesian and um, had claimed to be Puerto Rican and Colombian. And she had taken the title of the first Latina president of the National Lawyers Guild. And then it came out that actually she clung on to Latinidad because her stepfather was Peruvian. And she kind of <laughs> was arguing for like Latinidad through osmosis. And I think that they're like, all of these stories have a common thread in them, which is that Latinidad has become this very amorphous identity that people with various intersecting privileges and, you know, with different intersections of, of life experience. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I had uh, a personal friendship with um, Ache Carrillo. I spoke to him in Spanish. We spoke to each other in Spanish. We danced with each other. We uh, we had many personal conversations. We saw each other on very various different occasions. Um, if he didn't have a Cuban background, he did a good impersonation of having some background to that. Uh, so I, I, you know, I would even question who this woman is, is saying she's a sister, and she would come out and say something like that after the fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would imagine if I if I drop dead today, um, there's there's going to be somebody that's going to be come out and say something about me uh, to just for whatever reason they may have. But I don't see having known him and 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 had him as a personal friend. I don't know what would be the investment to do that. You know, not to that degree. You have to go through a great deal of impersonation to say, like, I'm going to pass now. I'm going to pass for Cuban with everybody that I talk to. Yeah, I know. So I don't I I, I don't find I don't find any credibility there. Even if you wanted to do that, to what degree can you can you get away with it? It seems not ultimately. Right. 
Acha Carrillo, really? Come on. Uh, you know, for, for now, I, 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 that's news to me. And I, and I, and I, I would, I would have to know who this woman is that's saying that to give her any credibility at all, because I had a, a friendship and a relationship with him. And I don't see where, where or why somebody would falsify an identity to that degree. Yeah, I, th- I think many people have that question as well. And there's a Rolling Stone article, um, Washington Post article that people can can look at if they want to learn more about it. Well, by the way, it doesn't take away from his talent or the friendship. Mm-hmm. He was a very intelligent man who pursued his degrees and his and his writing. And, you know, wherever he was born, it doesn't take away from that. Yeah, thank you for that. Your poem, Mass Shootings 2016 to 2019 and Counting, was a list of events of mass shootings in the U.S. with location, date, and the number of people who die, kind of examples of cold data. And then towards the end, you add a bit of context and color and expand on the on other gun-related deaths that occurred, like domestic violence-related and gang-related, et cetera. What made you structure the poem that way? I don't remember. And and to be very honest with you, there are some poems in this book that I don't remember what the impetus was, except that I can say to you that once, twice, three, four, five times uh, an ongoing occurrence, it just becomes like a, like a, a drum in your head. And the drum in my head is mm-hmm. the is the gun violence that we are experiencing and we're not dealing with in the United States of America. And mm-hmm. I must have had a, the impulse on a given day to look it up. And I don't call it a poem. There was a it was a decision that was made by me to keep to include this uh, as if it were a poem because what it really is is a list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we are living in a time in which we have to pay attention to numbers. And at some point, these numbers have to mean something. Mm -hmm. But we were living uh, in the past few years with a government that was turning the world upside down so that this didn't mean what it meant. And I think that that is exactly what happened to me. It was like, this is what's happening. And, and those numbers, although they are something to stop and, and pay attention to, still don't mean what I believe to be the real truth of what gun violence really is. So we can say 2,000 people were killed by gun violence in this year. But to, to my mind, and I am not for mass gun ownership. So, you know, that's my perspective and my point of view. So it still doesn't get close to what I think is the impact because if 20 or 10 children are killed on a given day in a school, those are 10 little lives that are are taken from Mm -hmm. us. And that's a lot. And that's something to stop and take pause and and to think about, which we were not doing. But it affects families, 10 families, 10, uh, 15, 20,000 children in the school 
and, the, and all their schools and their communities and the siblings and the generations, etc. So it doesn't just impact those numbers, but I just uh, I took toll of the numbers that were happening as we have heard them to be. And it's not poetry, but I, I needed a place to put it. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that, that you still chose to include the list in in the book, because I agree that it can be frustrating sometimes, even though a number is very jarring to look at at the same time, it can't ever hold all the complexities of, of each of these lives and all of the people and the ripple effects of the impact of the death as you were just talking about. But it was, it was really powerful to see how long the list was, even just picking two years. Because even though I, I took the time to to look at all the the stats on that, I I still felt it was under what the impact mm-hmm. is. Right. And you, so you had a poem on your writing process, which I loved. Um, and actually, you just mentioned though the editing process and the the process of you curating and selecting which poems you were ultimately going to put in this book. And I wanted to ask about that process and how you chose the poems that ultimately made up this book. Um, you know, in this collection, my uh, my book of the dead, I did ninety nine point nine percent of the editing on the book. As you know, it's a, in three sections, and I've been asked about you know how did that happen and so on and so forth. And I did that you know entirely on my own when I started to work on the book, which was in twenty twelve. For some reason, I had it in my head that it would take me 10 years to do a solid collection of poetry. And I think I get this idea from the fact that I, I've had experience and I have previous books of poems. And it seemed to me to have a solid book of poetry, it takes a very long time. And so I did very cold-heartedly eliminate poems that I wrote along the way and things that I had in there, ideas that I had in there, and then I would just suddenly say, well, no, this doesn't, doesn't fit. There was a, a point in time in which I printed out what I had and put it all on the bed, laid it all out there in front of myself to see what, what, what follows next, or where's the theme here? And then I decided, well, I could put this in uh, this section, and maybe this belongs over here. And even at the very end, I would uh, decide, eh, I don't feel that great about this poem, and I just killed it. So that's really how it comes, it comes to be. Um, the poem that you're referring mm. to, the, uh, it's called The Writing Process or something like that. And it's just mm-hmm, me mm-hmm. mopping or sweeping the floor and hearing music. That's, that's how it comes. It comes to us. On a given day, a given moment, we we grab a line or a phrase and we do something with it. And that's really when inspiration hits. You can be washing dishes. You can be sitting in the car wash line, something like that. And that could be the po- the poem. Not, not when you decide right. to sit at the desk and say, well, now I'm mm-hmm. going to write a poem. It doesn't happen right. that way. So, but then you have to decide, well, what can I work with? To be a serious poet, you you have to be um, you have to be very serious about it with yourself. And I find a lot of 
mm-hmm. new poets and younger poets get very sentimental about their poetry. And it's not about that. It's about the craft and what's working, what doesn't work. And so that's how I came to choose the poems that were in this book was the poems that were working versus the poems that meant something to me at the time that I wrote them. That sounds difficult to kind of to be able to step outside of that sentimentality, especially because the topics that you write about and the contemporary events that you're talking about are oftentimes very tragic. Well, like it or not, and, and that's why the, 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 this collection is called My Book of the, the Dead, like it or not, we are living in very tragic mm-hmm. times. We are in a crisis in the United States yeah. mm-hmm. for democracy. We are also dealing with right. um, the results of uh, climate change being ongoing catastrophes. It's no longer a shock to say that, well, in the South or in the Northeast, there was a hurricane or a tornado and all these people were devastated. No, it's like uh, here, the, right. this is what's happening. There are fires over here. There's a catastrophe over there. There's an earthquake over there. And so we are dealing with that. So this is where we are right now. And uh, it's become part of the 21st century reality. Um, as I said earlier, we are also working on um, or dealing with a time in which we have uh, people who are uh, experiencing personal loss and personal grief. And it's not always due to COVID. Your grandparents, your parents that are aging, um, there's uh, cancer that's affecting everybody across the board. So I don't think there's anybody today that in some way or, or other isn't being affected by personal loss. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So you mentioned the three different parts of the book and how you edited all of that and you decided the three different parts and which poems to place in them. What do those three different parts of the book represent? It's kind of a beginning, middle and end. Mm -hmm. The first poem, as you mentioned earlier on about John Trudell is, um, I was looking at these poems, and um, so there's a beginning, which is the warning. There's a storm upon us. The middle poems also talk about life in general, things that we all are experiencing in some way or another. I think about a poem um, dedicated to um, an African-American woman poet and professor whom I did not know personally, Akila Oliver. Yeah, I remember that poem. But I shared an, an affinity with her, not only as a person of color, a woman of color, a mother of color in this country, but her son uh, went through a, uh, a very, uh, he was a graffiti artist and unfortunately he, he uh, died in a hospital out of neglect. and. A few years later, very shortly after, she was in her 40s, she died of a, of a heart attack. And I, I really believed in my heart that it was uh, as a result of, of just grief over her son. I with her as a mother, as a woman of color. Mm-hmm. She was also a teacher and a single mother. And so right. Um, right. that was a poem that was, uh, that's ongoing. It's a theme that's ongoing. 
And that would be like in the middle part of the book. And the third part of the book has to do more with, I don't want to say mythology or fantasy, but there's, right. uh, mm-hmm. there, there are poems that are, mm-hmm. they, they do elicit mythology and fantasy right. and whimsy. Where are we go as to where are we going now in the 21st century? Where do we go now? Can you, can you explain the term mukse? I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that was Chicanista? No, muk m u x e. Oh. Uh, and, and, and mushi, mushi. Okay, <laughs> thank yeah. you for thank you for that. Um, what what does that word? Well, mean? I can't tell you. I I I suspect it's a it's a Mayan derivative, uh, uh, but it's it's a term that's referred to a uh, a person who's of the uh, third gender. Or, or here in this country, okay. we're saying two spirit because it's taken from the Native American. But it's basically it's referring to mm-hmm. a person who was born a male who decides to or must live as a female, or perhaps goes uh, and transitions totally in becoming a female. But um, in southern Mexico. Uh, they have been uh, accepted for a very long time in this uh, culture that is a matriarchal culture. So a person who decides, who was born a male, who decides to live as a female in this matriarchal culture is uh, considered a mushi. Okay. And so, right, so kind of represents the resistance to gender norms. And uh, it's an example of how there are societies that are, have been operating outside of the gender binary for a long time. No, it's, a, it's, it's from a little poem that I wrote about, about that. Uh, I'm a, I, I, I've been a great admirer for a very long time in uh, the culture in Southern Mexico uh, in the Yucatan with the um, Huchitecas that it's a matriarchal society, historically speaking. And so I, I wrote a poem, like a persona poem, uh, of a person who was born male, but decides to live as a female in this culture. When you say matriarchal society, what, what does that look like? And we should be very proud, or I, I should be very proud as a Chicana, as a woman of Mexican descent, that we have one in, in Mexico, in, in this area, uh, in Oaxaca, we have one of the last matriarchs, uh, ma- matriarchal societies in the in the world. And what that looks like is that it's the women. It's that men and women are both involved in the economy and making the living. Men were fishermen. The women ran the market, so on and so forth. Uh, women also did weaving, and, and this is goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. It was really wonderful and beautiful. But women were the ones who handled the purse. So that's mm. what the, uh, okay. the matriarch was about. It's like the man, just like a, all societies around the world, they went out and they, hunt, they hunted or they fished. And they continued to do so 
in this area, but in this area, the women handled the purse. And they also were the, the people that you would see if you went to the mercado that were running the market. They, they make those decisions. Mm. And there was no problem in this society. They also dealt with indigo and so forth. It's very beautiful. It's changed quite a bit in the, in the last decades. Um, and I was really proud and uh, enthusiastic about this, um, this aspect of Mexico that uh, continued to do this. And, and um, um, this aspect of the two-spirit person or the person born in, uh, uh, as a male and who decided to be... Um, or identified or, as... Or yeah. didn't feel it was a decision, yes. but but needed to live this life, was accepted in this society. Like identi- identifying with femininity. Right. They, this is, they were accepted. This is the important thing. It's not, it's not as if the society said, well, what are you talking about? They accepted it, and, it was, uh, and it, there, was no, um, there was no controversy around it. Right, right. So you mentioned that you identify as Chicana, and you coined the term Chicanisma, can you explain what that means? Well, I have been, I was given the, the term Chicana um, in the 70s when, you know, as a young activist when I left Chicago and I moved to California because in, in California, this was like a big thing, the Chicano movement. And in the 80s, when, when the literature of, of, of individuals that were from Mexican descent was, was crossing over and becoming more popular, we were called Chicanos and Chicanas. And I, I don't have a problem with that at that time because I'm not born in Mexico. I was born here. I was born in Chicago in the United States, but I'm very proud. And, and as an activist, it was very important for me to give the perspective of, of brown women in the United States, mm. born in the United States. And so that's always been an important issue for me, but we're also transnational because our families have been affected by the conquest for over 500 years. And we have had different issues with US-Mexico policies and mm-hmm. uh, the border patrol didn't become into, didn't come into effect into 19, until 1924, which is- right late into the game if you're thinking about mm-hmm. 500 years of going back and forth the southwest and the u.s mexico war and so um all that has been very important for me to to identify as a chicana it wasn't just being chicano or chicano chicano or chicana it was also about being a feminist and that's where the word um chicana came from with the next and chicanismo it's that we also had our own specific feminism that had to address these issues along the border and on both sides of the border into the United States and, mm. and into Mexico. Certain poems were ones that you translated from Spanish to English. What was that process like? Well, you know, I, I could write more in Spanish, but I've chosen to write in English. It was a very deliberate decision because I am born in the United States and I publish in the U.S. And so I write in English and and occasionally I let some things that I've written in Spanish surface uh, because I knew that I was going to publish in the United States. I knew that 
that it would be important to have the translation with the Spanish original. I have hesitated to translate my own work because I have a tendency to want to rewrite the poem, recreate the poem in another language. Right. Translate. And it's so easy to do. It's it's so easy to do that because language conveys culture. And so, and, you know, there are words that are encompassing concepts that might not, that don't translate perfectly between exactly. like English and Spanish. And so right. it's so just you, such a difficult task, really. Right. So I hesitated to do that for the very longest time because I would want to rewrite it in the other language because as uh, Francisco Alarcón said a long time ago, a, be- a beso is not a kiss. When you say un beso, it doesn't mean the same thing as when you say, give me a kiss. So I uh, knew that I had to do a translation in this book because I was going to publish it in the U.S. And I, I put the word out and asked people who could translate. I think people responded that were bilingual and not necessarily translators. Uh, I am a translator. I've, I've made a living as a translator in, in both languages. And so I know there's a difference. And so I, I'm very grateful to the people that stepped forward and wanted to translate. And so some of the poems that, were, uh, that are in the book uh, show uh, credits to them and to myself. And that's because I, I saw that they were translating the poem but um, it, there, there's a certain art to translation, and and, um, and it's as you say. I mean, the culture comes involved. It doesn't mean the same thing. A beso is not a kiss. It means something else. And I, I had to. I, I, I'm grateful for their work and their uh, volunteering to do it, and and so on. But um, I also felt that it, it takes a certain sensitivity to be a translator. And you have to, um, mm-hmm. you have to take the culture into consideration. Definitely, definitely. That's why it's such a hard task. In the poem, these times you explore aging and how society devalues women as they age uh, because of that fact. And I wanted to ask, what inspired that poem, or what made you want to include that poem in this book? Well, I was um, invited to to attend the inauguration of the new president at the university in Chicago that I graduated from with my BA. And she was an African, she is, she was and continues to be the president there. She was an African-American woman. And I was invited to, to attend that ceremony and to present a poem in honor of the ceremony. Um, I didn't have something at the moment that I was, that I felt was appropriate. But I decided at that time to address not only the occasion, but also the moment of, that we were in, uh, which was the last administration and the things that we were experiencing. And I also talked about my own history, my own ancestral history as, as a Mexican woman and what we've inherited and from our in, indigenous ancestors and so on. So it's a, a little bit of a long poem, but it finally comes around to the point that women, at least historically, are always the ones left to clean up the mess. 
so I did read that poem at uh, the beautiful ceremony in Chicago. Everyone was there out on a beautiful sunny day in the regalia. And I started to talk about the, the ancestors and the battles and the wars that we've all had to go through. And at the end, it, it comes around to it's always the women who are left to clean up the mess. And so that was the inspiration and, and the desire that we will be here and we will get it together. Whatever is left to us to do, mothers, women, even children come in and go through the rubble and we start again. Right. I really appreciated the sentiment of that poem as you've explained it now. So those were all, actually all the questions that I had for you. I don't know if there was anything about the book that you wanted to share that we haven't gotten to touch on yet. No, there's nothing that I, I have to add in particular, but I do want to say to people that, you know, because we're not, I'm not able to be in, in, in person doing uh, bookstore signings and, you know, personal um, engagements. If there's anyone out there that has ordered the book and would like a, uh, a signature, an autograph, or, you know, personal dedication to somebody, I'm on social media and they can just message me, ask me, let me know that they got the book and give me the details and their address. And I'll be very happy to send a nameplate that they can put in the book. Perfect. I will definitely include that little note in the show notes. And just Ana Castilla wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today about your book of poems. All right. Thank you very much.